0: Well good morning church. It's it's great to be here with you today. This is March. Uh, It's getting a little bit warmer. This is also the month of our global outreach conference and so we've been uh, putting a lot of plans in place and looking forward to having a number of our global partners here to join us in just a few weeks and pray that you're making provisions to be here. I want to give you a heads up. Uh, This year in particular we have a number of global partners who are coming that are working in parts of the world that are uh, a little bit more sensitive in regards to the gospel. And so we are not going to be able to live stream as many. Uh, sessions as we were last year. And so some will be live-streamed when we're able, but a number of our global partners have asked that we uh, protect their identity and their ministry uh, by not live-streaming some sessions. So you want to make plans and provisions now in your calendars to be here in person, uh, if at all, able that week coming up in just a few weeks. Looking forward to that time together. And we have a memory verse this month to help prepare our hearts and minds for Global Outreach Conference so let's say it together. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Revelation 14, 6. Absolutely a beautiful Uh, message for us to remember as we prepare to hear what God is doing in all different parts uh, of the world around us. We know it's been an an interesting uh, week or so. I've had a number of opportunities to spend time uh, with our young ones, our next generation here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. Last Sunday, I got to see some of our 4th and 5th graders. That's a wild crew. Uh, our boys in particular on Sunday morning, they really uh, have a lot of energy in them. And I see some of our volunteers who work with them are laughing right now. Wednesday night, uh, I was here for popcorn and pray, uh, pastors and popcorn on Wednesday night at Arwana. And I, wanted, I, I just want you to know, parents, that um, first off, your children are wonderful Uh, But second off, nothing is sacred when the pastor is present. Just so you know, um, we were in Cubbies, and uh, our lesson was in John 6, and this was with the youngest kids, and and I was saying uh, to them, uh, what is what is your favorite food? And we were going around and they were sharing and uh, the Puggles had come in and, and one of the little boys that was in Puggles, uh, he's sitting there. This is the youngest of the kids that come and the question gets around to him and his brother was there with him and his brother looks at him and says, your favorite food, your favorite food. And uh, he looks at his brother, he looks at me and he says, well, all I eat is candy and mint chocolate chip ice cream. Laughter I thought, well, uh, there there goes. Uh, I did give dad a little bit of a hard time as I was leaving. But of course, he blamed mom uh, for all that. But (laughs) you never know what you're going to hear. And uh, today, um, just get ready. We are with our students in 7th through 12th grade today. Uh, Now, I do have to say that uh, we have a tough act to follow. Because Pastor Bob, you were in there last week. And man, did I hear some stories and they're excited. I thought, wow, I don't, uh, I don't have that same kind of background. So, you know, I thought maybe there was a way I could weasel out of, out of it today. And then I saw it was raining, and I thought, well, I really don't want my hair to get messed up between there and the building. So maybe maybe I'll stay down here today. No, I, I, won't, I won't do that to you, Vince, but I know. Uh, it's exciting uh, to be able to walk alongside our young people as they grow. And I think uh, one, of, one of the reasons I love coaching so much and that it's always been a part of my ministry and my life is because in coaching you can walk alongside of individuals in a sport and you can see them grow and improve and grab hold of concepts and techniques and begin to put them in practice in a way that helps them to be successful in their context. In a very similar way, when our children are young, when our youth are young, we're bringing them to church, we're having them be part of these ministries, and they're learning the word, and they're hearing the word, and they're growing in the word, and they're learning that the word works in their life. As they use it, as they put it into practice, as they memorize it. And so you can watch from a very uh, young age our children grow as they learn and study and hear more and more uh, about the word of God and this was true back in the early church as well In fact, it was true for Paul. It was true for the early church leaders the resurrected Messiah Had changed their life. It had changed the patterns of their life It had changed the way that they lived and we've been exploring the book of first Corinthians together We're in chapter 15 today verses uh, 29 to 34 if you want to go ahead and turn there a while and Paul is really uh, going to shift his attention in the text today to defending the reality of the resurrection towards uh, more demonstrating or showing what the ethical implications of the resurrection meant to his life and to the church. Perhaps the question would be formed this way, how, uh, how does the resurrection of Jesus order the priorities ...of the resurrected community? Or how does living in the light of the resurrected Messiah... ...inform the patterns and the habits of not just our personal lives... ...but our corporate lives as well? And so we're going to look at those uh, questions... ...as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today... ...looking at verses 29 to 34 before we read. Let's ask the Lord to guide our time this morning. Father, we do... Come before you today as a thankful people, as a people who uh, have been washed in the blood, as a people who uh, have received your grace and your love and who stand uh, in that, who recognize you as the cornerstone of the church. And we're so thankful for these words that Paul wrote Uh, Many, many years ago that still have a lot of relevance in our lives today. Uh, We know, Lord, even as we study your word this morning, that your spirit's at work and he is ready to apply to each and every one of our hearts exactly what we need so that we can take the word today, take it out into our communities uh, and apply it in our lives because it works, Father. And we're just so thankful for your faithfulness in guiding and directing and uh, moving us as you are at work in our lives our hearts are still heavy for the country of Ukraine and the crisis going on there, Father. As we approach your word today, uh, we understand that there is loss and there is grief. And as Pastor Bob uh, so mentioned, uh, there is wars and rumors of wars in this world that we live in. And uh, Father, we want you to help us see through the fog of that grief and even the loss that our faith communities have experienced uh, this week. And Arlene and in Gary, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to to see through the fog of of grief and mourning and and help us look uh, squarely and solely at the resounding truth of your word that we might be able to take it and use it uh, in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Otherwise, what do people mean By being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus... If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And we begin this portion of Paul's letter today with a word that kind of works as a chain to link what he is saying here to previous instruction in his letter. Paul says the word otherwise. And in Paul's mind, the reality is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as witnessed by the broader community ushered in or paved the way for the formation of both new creation and new community. For those of us who are in Christ... We are a new creation. We're created in Christ Jesus. For the church, we are a new community. A community that is different from and unlike any other community in the history of the world. Jesus' resurrection makes all of this, friends, a reality. And as Paul stated last, in last week's portion of 1 Corinthians 15, all of this will ultimately find its consummation... In a time and space when God is eternally worshipped and glorified as all in all. A resurrected Messiah changes the dynamics of how we live, how we move, and how we have our being here on earth. Otherwise, Paul says, look again at verse 29. What do we mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized On their behalf, now I know what some of you are thinking, where are you going to go with that one, Pastor Chris? (laughs) And I just want to let you know, uh, with that verse, um, there is a lot of diversity and points of view in regard to what Paul is intending to say in that verse. In fact, one commentator I was reading this week noted over 200 different interpretations currently on verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. Obviously, today in the church, we no longer practice being baptized on behalf of someone who has already passed away. Yet in Paul's day, it appears that this was probably a practice that was somewhat regular in the church. Regular enough for him to uh, include it in his letter to the church in Corinth. I might suggest this. Perhaps this had something to do with the novelty and the new formation of the church. There were many early believers who were delivered into the church through the baptism that comes at the moment of our salvation, but perhaps before their death, they were unable to declare their faith publicly through the physical waters of baptism. So then, One acceptable understanding of this verse may be that in Paul's day, there were believers in the church who made it a practice of being physically baptized for someone that knew Jesus, but had died before they themselves were physically able to declare their belief in the waters of baptism. Now, what's important to note with verse 29 is that Paul is neither saying that this is an acceptable practice... Nor is he condemning it. Rather, he's directing the attention of his people towards a practice that had been initiated within the church due to their belief in a resurrected Messiah. So I think what verse 29 does more than anything else, regardless of of what the exact interpretation of that verse is and how it was applied in that context... ...is that it reminds us that the resurrection changed and influenced the dynamics of the behaviors that existed within the early church. It also reinforces the idea that that the resurrection influenced the way that early Christians thought about the afterlife. As remember we had said a number of weeks ago, this was not a common way of thinking... Uh, among people that lived back then resurrection was an impossibility and so in a very real way the people who were gathering in the church had been nudged or moved from doubting the possibility of a resurrection to now being fully convinced even convicted that this was indeed a reality that jesus had risen from the dead and they too would one day rise from the dead The attitudes of the early church, their behaviors, and the traditions, they carried consequence for the time and the space that they were living in. And what followed closely behind this changed way of thinking and acting was danger. We see that throughout this text. And still today, friends, we know this as Global Outreach Conference approaches, we will have global partners here who are serving in parts of the world we're carrying the gospel or sharing the gospel openly and out in public could bring a myriad of difficulty, danger, even physical persecution. The belief in a resurrected Messiah who is Lord of all things and reigns over all things, the belief in that and the proclamation of that message carries with it the threat of severe persecution and even death in some parts of the world. And Paul's words here in this text today, isn't it interesting? Uh, He focuses them both corporately and individually. But verse 30 is focused corporately. We know how Paul had been in danger individually, but he wants the church to consider and remember the consequence for their beliefs in their social and political context. Take a look again at verse 30. What does he say? Why are what? We. Why are we in danger every hour. Now, he's talking about the early church leaders, those who did the same ministry that he did, but he's also talking about the many who had been gathered in the church that were going to continue on this work. And perhaps a fair question to ask is how was the Corinthian church and its early church leaders facing the threat of imminent danger? Who was persecuting the early church? That's a fair question. And to answer that question, we actually have to take a difficult look at the persecution that the early church faced at the hands of their former Jewish religious leaders. Now consider this. Consider the reality that they were living in. As the early church was growing, inevitably it began to draw a large number of followers away from traditional Judaism. Now this had massive social and financial uh, impact on an institution that was firmly entrenched in Jewish communities and comfortably existing within the Roman government. The Jewish religious leaders, they did not like the fact that Rome considered Christianity a sect of Judaism. That's how Rome viewed early Christianity. It was a sect of Judaism. And that reality allowed the early church to grow its influence as it was protected and extended the same liberties as those who worshipped in the synagogues. And if the Jewish religious leaders, if they could get the Roman government just to view or consider Christianity as a cult rather than as a sect within Judaism, then the Christian Church, now divorced from Judaism, could be treated much differently, even driven out of some areas where it had been established. And so the Jewish, the, the religious leaders, uh, they came up with a plan through the Roman legal system to deal with Christianity. And their goal in this plan was to make the church appear to be in violation of either Jewish or Roman law. And if found in violation, the church could or would forfeit the protections that accommodated religious gatherings under the Roman law. So the religious leaders assemble in this place called Achaia. It's a province between Macedonia and Corinth. And they go before a ruler whose name is Gallio. Not Galileo, okay? Galileo. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. This account's actually in your Bibles, by the way. The account of this uh, attempt to thwart the growth of the early church. Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17. This is the danger that Paul's speaking about that the early church faced. Starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 18. Now, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews attacked Paul together and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God in a way contrary to the law. But just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of some crime or serious piece of villainy, I would have been justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews. But since it concerns uh, points of disagreement about words and names and your own law, settle it yourself. I will not be the judge of these things. Then he had them forced away from the judgment seat. So they all seized Sosthenes the president of the synagogue and began to beat him in front of the judgment seat yet none of those things were any concern to gallio so we need to be thankful for a man like gallio who sees right through the scheming of the religious leaders and this is uh, this is a huge ruling that had massive implications that reverberated throughout the early church one scholar uh, on this particular Uh, rule, remarked the following. He said, quote, "Uh, this ruling established a very important legal precedent similar to the United States Supreme Court refusing to hear a case on appeal, end quote. And so this non-ruling, this unwillingness to take on this situation that was going on uh, remained a way for Christianity to be considered by the Roman law as a sect of Judaism, which was a religion recognized and protected in some ways by the Roman government. And so this allowed Paul and the other apostles and early church leaders to continue to preach and to spread the gospel under the protection and the provision of of The Roman government now it's important to note that this was until about 64 AD and some of us know what happened in 64 AD Nero became the emperor and when Nero became the emperor he began the first organized government persecution of the newly established Christian church and so when Paul asked this question why are we in danger every hour He's reminding the church that it was the reality of the resurrection that motivated the courage for them to gather and to continue to propagate the gospel message in the face of danger and persecution from those within their own families, their own neighborhoods, their own communities. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish background believer who had been converted to Christianity. Your entire family is still stuck in Judaism, expecting you to live and abide and to follow by all the laws and traditions that you have now been freed from by the blood of Christ. this would cause uh, enormous division in families, shattering families, breaking them apart in many ways. And so there were threats. There were dangers to the people who were gathering. And the fact that Jesus uh, continued, even in the face of this persecution, to grow his church. It became a source of great pride for Paul. And by the way, friends, we hear today, and and we're going to hear in a few weeks, throughout the world, in the places where the church is most persecuted, guess what often begins to happen? The church grows faster under persecution. That's what history tends to show us. That when churches face religious persecution from their governments, oftentimes the church grows at a faster rate than when not persecuted. So quite literally, for Paul, the church was his pride and joy. It was evidence for him that Jesus was alive and working in and through his ministry. The church was, and friends, it is supposed to be a community, a living breathing, dynamic, life-giving organism. That one, it was one that Paul was very much ready to lay down his own life to defend. And not only would he lay down his life for the church, but in doing so, he would consider laying his life down as gain. The words to his letter uh, in the church of Philippi, they give us great insight into his ministry mentality. And I just want to read them because this is Paul writing to another faith community and hear how he talks about being willing to lay down his life. He says this, my confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet, I don't know which to prefer. I feel torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it's more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain in the body. And continue with you all for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. So that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I come back to you. And so as Paul steps back and takes inventory of how the reality of the resurrection is forming the patterns of this new community, he begins to express his pride in this community in verse 31. Look at what he says. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And so if in verse 30 we see a communal reflection on how the resurrection informed the ethics of the church corporately, verse 31 and 32 become more of a personal reflection for Paul. In verse 30, we, the church, are in constant danger. In verse 32, Paul reflects on the constant danger he personally faced as he preached the gospel throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Take a look at what he says in verse 32. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, now biblical scholars are divided on whether Paul is using the word beast here in a literal or a metaphorical sense. As a Roman citizen, Paul would have been spared from having to participate in the horrors of the gladiatorial arena events. He would not have had to Um, be subject to those because he was a Roman citizen. But perhaps, in a literal sense, uh, he did fight off beasts somewhere in Ephesus. However, the metaphorical interpretation of beast, referring to the people who opposed his ministry, even to the point of physically persecuting him, it probably seems like that is what's more likely here in this context. Many times, throughout Paul's ministry, He was beaten. We've read about this. He was taken captive. He was imprisoned. He was kicked out. He was even stoned. In Ephesus, in particular, Paul came up against a man. You might remember this account. Uh, It's in the book of Acts chapter 19. He comes up against a man whose name is Demetrius. And Demetrius is a silversmith. And Demetrius feels threatened by Paul's ministry. Does anybody remember why? What, what did the Yeah, he was, he was creating little idols and trinkets for a temple that his people were worshiping at. A, false, a temple of a false god. And as the church grew in his area, what do you think that did to his business? Yeah. Took it way, way down. And the account of what happens is actually found in, in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. By the way... Uh, Friends, if you want to read a book about the adventures of the early church leaders, the book of Acts is your book to read. It's full of these thrilling accounts of all the things that happened to the early church leaders. But listen to what happened uh, when Paul opposes Demetrius. At that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together, along with the workmen in similar trades, and says, Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business. And you see and hear that this paw, how about that? He gets a this in front of his name. You know, like like this paw guy, this paw, he's persuaded and turned away a large crowd. Not only in Ephesus, but in practically all of the province of Asia. By saying that the gods made by hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute. But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she, whom all the province of Asia and the world worship, will suffer the loss of her greatness. Boo-hoo. And when they heard this, they became enraged and they began to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with an uproar and the crowd rushed to the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and the Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Now the account goes on. You can read it. It's quite the adventure. In fact, Paul actually, this is Paul. I love how he was wired. He wanted to go after them. He was like, I'm going after, I want, to, I want to get those guys back, I want to go after them. And, and thankfully, some of his disciples and some of the local authorities who knew him and were friendly with him, they kind of warned him not to go do that, because that could end badly for him and, and perhaps for their area. And so eventually, Paul relents and he continues his journey. But as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, I imagine that Paul is reflecting on all of these incidences that he faced in his own mind. And he's asking himself the question, if not the church, if Christ be not raised, why am I doing this? Why am I doing all of this? It makes absolutely no sense if Jesus is not risen from the dead. And so once again, Paul's testimony aims us at this reality of the resurrection and how it informed the behaviors and the lifestyle patterns of those who believed in and accepted its truth. And I think it's interesting here in this text, uh, Paul actually quotes from the book of Isaiah. And he is reflecting back on a time in Jewish history that was rather hopeless. In Isaiah chapter 22, Jerusalem has come under judgment. That's where Paul's quoting from uh, in this verse. And we might expect that a proper response to this judgment would have been rep- repentance and contrition, demonstrating their faith in a God who is merciful and ready to forgive. But instead, the people of Jerusalem are celebrating, they're happy, there's joy. A proper posture would have been to lament and to mourn. But the people are indifferent about their sin. And they forget, that they forget to consider that they serve a God who is ready, willing, and able to forgive. And so instead of this contrition that we would expect, the people were going around saying, Kill the ox, slaughter the sheep, eat meat, drink wine, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We die in their minds. Their fate was sealed. So they just decided to live however they pleased, expecting to die in judgment. And the Lord's response to their apathy and indifference is terrifying. If you remember Isaiah chapter 22, uh, certainly God says this sin will not be forgiven as long as you live. In judgment, God had not forgotten them. But they had neglected to remember the truth about God's character, and this led the people to live with apathy and indifference towards their sin and their faithlessness. Now, back in First Corinthians 15, Paul is saying, if the dead are not raised, the church might as well live with this same sort of indifference. Just we talk about friends on Sundays when we leave here, we want to be able to apply the things we've learned, put them into practice in our life. Why does any of that matter? If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, just leave here, go home, have lunch, be happy, and just get home with your lives. doesn't matter whether you come back next week or not, right? If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, why do we do any of it? Paul's harping on this over and over and over again. But I love what he does here because he understands that this is A monumental topic for the church to grasp and understand. They have to get this. This is a matter of first priority. He's trying to move an entire culture from unbelief in resurrection towards belief in resurrection. And so first he uses an Old Testament passage in verse 32. And that passage is going to connect the Jewish background believers who were in the church to the truth of the word. But then look what he does in verse 32. 33. This is amazing. In verse 33, he uses a student from the school of Aristotle, a famous dramatist from Athens known as Menander. And Menander's comedies were well known among the people of Rome. And so Paul takes one of Menander's infamous lines that would have been used probably throughout the region and throughout the area. And he uses it in verse 33 as a proverb. Take a look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. How many of your parents use that one against you as a child? <laughs> I got that one thrown at me um, quite a bit. To be careful. Um, Thankful for mom and dad for using it, but maybe when, when I was growing up and they were using it, we were using it a bit out of context. That's all right. We'll put it in context here. For Gentile background believers coming into the church, the content of Menander's work would have been more familiar to them than the Old Testament. Gentile background believers didn't read the Old Testament, they didn't know the Old Testament. So Paul uses someone in their time and space that they would have known. A a word, a phrase that they would have recognized. And this saying, uh, it may have been very common among the people. In fact, Socrates uh, even attributes a very similar statement to Euripides. uh, That Euripides said something very similar to this. And, And there's even some debate in scholarly circles that Menander was guilty of plagiarizing. Euripides, because he came after him. Regardless of where it originated in the ancient Roman world, it points to Paul's knowledge and ability to use all the tools at his disposal to direct people to Jesus. That's what he's doing here. It's really amazing how he does this. The bad company That Paul is referring to here that may potentially corrupt the good morals or good character of those within the church were groups that were gathering as the church. Perhaps even saying they accepted the teachings of Jesus and even some of his miracles, but denying the resurrection. They were not accepting the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And it's a good time for us to reflect again on the reality that most of the churches that were gathering in Corinth would have been small house churches. From time to time, those house churches might have come together for larger corporate gatherings. And Paul's reminding the community of faith to be careful to not align themselves with gatherings or individuals who are identifying as the church, yet refusing to accept one of the church's essential convictions Or priorities. Friends. Resurrection of the dead. Is an essential conviction. And a matter of first priority. For the church. Jesus was much more than a good teacher. Jesus was much more than a good man. With good morals. And some strong positive vibes. Happening. Within him. Jesus was the son of God. And the son of man. He was the perfect unblemished sacrifice sent by God to save humanity from its problems of sin and death. And the way that Jesus solved our problems was by taking on our sins, going to the cross and dying the death that we owed. But he didn't stay dead. After he was buried, he rose from the dead. Then he appeared to many before finally ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, his father. Friends, these are the essential realities pertaining to Jesus and the church. It was what we were to be and are to be gathering around. And Paul has made this abundantly clear at the beginning of chapter 15. There can be no unity in Christ if those who are identifying as the church are not actually yet in Christ themselves. And one is unable to truly be considered in Christ if they refuse to accept the veracity of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. Friends, you cannot be born again if you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is an essential belief pertaining to, our salvation, one that all of the church must unite around, agree around and move forward together around. And so when Paul gives this kind of instruction to the church, he's focused uh, on those existing among the church who are identifying as the church, and he's wanting them to be careful that they're not aligning themselves with those who are not believing in resurrection. He's not talking about people outside the church who don't yet believe. Uh, Rather, we should expect that someone who does not identify as a Christian, does not attend church, would not accept or believe in the risen Lord or the resurrection of the dead. But the expectation, friends, is different for those within the church. For those of us who identify as part of the church, perhaps even say, yes, we're Christians. Uh, If we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, there is a fatal, fatal flaw in our belief system in fact i may argue our belief system in jesus uh, may may not even have begun yet we have to accept and believe in the resurrection of christ from the dead paul has made resurrection a matter of first priority within the church and so following in this pattern we the church today should also hold the resurrection of jesus as a matter of first priority And friends, I believe this is one of the reasons, just to bring this down to a pragmatic way we see this unfold in the church today, this is probably one of the reasons that we have processes and structures in place to receive new members in our congregations. And perhaps one of the primary ways that the membership process protects the faith community uh, is that we can uh, have a little bit of runway or lead-in with a person that may be new in the church to try to find out what their beliefs or convictions are are to ensure that they truly do identify with and believe in the core fundamental convictions of the Christian faith. And if and when throughout the process it might be determined that there is a misunderstanding on one or more of the essential areas, this gives our elders uh, an opportunity to shepherd, to guide, uh, even to reorient one towards a more biblically formed conviction about the essentials of the faith. And so Paul moves on in verse 34, and again, we can link, as he concludes, we can link verse 34 directly back to verse 12, which kind of um, moves us into this section. So let's re-familiarize ourselves with verse 12, and then we'll jump right into verse 34. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Then verse 34, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And Paul's making it clear to those present among the church who refuse to proclaim the resurrected Lord, the time is now to wake up, to be stirred out of their fog, and in their unbelief, to stop sinning. He's not shaming the whole congregation here. Rather, Paul is uncovering a healthy shame that exposes those who identify as the church, yet are practicing unbelief in the resurrection. And he equates their behavior as the same as having no knowledge of God. Friends, unbelief is sin, right? We must live in belief, and our lives must be formed by the things that we say, We believe in. If we say we believe something, but we live as though it looks to outsiders like we don't believe it, well, there's a disconnect there. And oftentimes that's when the church is most guilty of being identified with hypocrisy. And so we might ask as we draw our time to a close today, how might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly not yet believing? World. And in light of the text that we read today, we might say this Proclaiming the resurrected Messiah, we lay down our lives for one another, living with great purpose and hope. Our words and actions testify to our current and future resurrection. Church, Paul's challenge today reminds us that our beliefs have a direct correlation on our behaviors or the patterns and postures and attitudes. Of our lives. For the church, belief in resurrection should animate both our beliefs and our practices. We are a community, friends, of the already and not yet resurrected. And this should give us great hope and encouragement to shine as light and endure as salt in the world that God has planned us in. I look at the war in Ukraine, we've been praying fervently. There's an opportunity in your bulletin this week to pray. To give on the back. Um, Friends, we can face that situation with a kind of hope that is uncommon in this world because of Jesus. That doesn't make it any easier. That doesn't forfeit the pain and the hardness and the difficulty of what war is. But it does remind us that in light of the risen Messiah, we can face really, really hard really difficult things in this world together as a community and support one another and hold one another up, especially through practices and patterns in our lives like prayer. Belief in the resurrection should compel us to lay down our lives for one another, to be willing to die daily, to go the extra mile, to give the coat off our backs, to turn our other cheek, to love our neighbor, to seek the good of our communities, to serve the poor, the weak, And the orphan. Church, Paul lived with great purpose. He lived with great purpose. And he lived with great pride in what Jesus was accomplishing in and through him. As he daily practiced dying to himself for the church. For Paul to die was gain. And as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion today. uh, Which ironically we get to practice. uh, One of the elements of our faith corporately this morning. I might ask this question. How will the reality of the resurrected Lord inform the patterns of our lives this week?